series. We're actually getting near the end. I think this is the 11th uh, sermon in this series. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 7. Okay, we're back. Uh, Now, I want you guys to notice something. Service was flowing along so smoothly until I stepped up here. (laughs) So, what does that tell us? I'm not sure. I'll consider that later. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Let's close in prayer and head home. Okay, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. uh, Read along with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say... Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Uh, <clears throat> the songs this morning, just beautiful. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, the, uh, the Phil Wickham song, Living Hope, that we sang is one of my all-time favorites. And I always, on days when I'm preaching, I try to tone down the volume at which I'm singing. But, you know, you, what can you do? It's a Phil Wickham song. I had to just let it out. Well, this, uh, so as I mentioned, we're getting near the end of the book of Philippians. Chapter 4 is the last chapter. just a few uh, sections yet to go. And as Paul begins winding down toward the end of this epistle, as he usually does in his epistles, he turns his uh, focus toward things that are more personal and more practical. You'll recall last week, uh, Sam preached to us from uh, Philippians 4, 1 through 3, and uh, there Paul directly addressed two women in the congregation at Philippi by name, Euodia and Syntyche, that were at odds with each other. So he's getting more personal. And then when I say he's getting more practical, I don't mean that now he's finally giving us something that we can use. What I mean is he's turning his attention to the practice of all the doctrine that he's taught in the earlier parts of the book. So this is a uh, working out of the, of the truths of Scripture that he's given us earlier in the book. Now, you'll probably notice that there are five imperatives in this passage. There are five commands. They are rejoice, and again, rejoice, both imperatives. Let your your reasonableness be known. Do not be anxious, and let your requests be made known. So through Paul, the, the Holy Spirit is telling us this is how you should live. Now that you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, now that you've been justified and cleansed and adopted and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, now this is how you live that out. This is how you walk. This is how you practice the new life that God has given to you. And I want to draw your attention to two phrases that provide a foundation for these commands. In the Lord, in verse 4, and in Christ Jesus in verse 7. Both of these phrases refer to our union with Christ, the fact that when we trust in Christ, we are united to Him. 
And I want you to see these commands in the context of our union with Christ. In, in fact, outside of that union, outside of being in Christ, these commands actually don't even make sense. You can't rejoice in the Lord unless you are in the Lord. These verses are talking about living in light of that union, living in light of our union with Christ. And interestingly, each of these commands, as with all of God's commands, but each of these commands carries with it an inherent blessing. So you can look at this passage as describing some of the blessings or benefits that are given to everyone who is united to the Lord. And I say some of the blessings because, of course, in actuality, all of the blessings that we enjoy, salvation and everything that follows from it, is as a result of being united to Christ. So Paul only highlights a few here. Theologian John Murray says that union with the Lord Jesus is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So before I get back to today's passage, I do want to give you a few verses that describe this glorious reality of union with Christ. John 14, 23, this is Jesus speaking, said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We'll be united with him. In John 15, 5, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. You are united to me organically and for life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Romans chapter 6, verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in his death, excuse me, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the thing I want to hammer home here before we talk about these commands that God has given us is that when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you trust in what he has done, that he has died on the cross for your sins, that he has risen from the dead, and he gives life and salvation to everyone who trusts in him, when you do that, then you are united to Jesus in an eternal indissoluble bond through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that we are all baptized into one body by the Holy Spirit. Your relationship with Jesus now is so close that Scripture says it's as if it's no longer you who's living, but Christ who is living in you. The, uh, the most intimate and personal connection that you can imagine. So, verses 4 through 7 describe three blessings, as I mentioned, that flow from our union in Christ. And we'll just look at those in turn. First of all, union with Christ gives us access to invincible joy. Merriam-Webster defines invincible as incapable of being conquered, overcome, or subdued. So when you are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have access to joy that cannot be conquered because the basis of this joy is unconquerable, which is God himself. It is an eternal joy. Verse 4 says, once again, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say Rejoice. Now, before I go any farther, I want you to think about this. It is very easy, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, or maybe we've been the person inflicting this on others, but it's very easy for someone who is going through just a glorious and beautiful time in life, who's enjoying full health and a great paying job and wonderful relationships. It's real easy for a person living easy to tell you, rejoice. And if you're suffering, that can feel kind of like salt in your wounds. It can feel kind of glib, like just a platitude that someone's tossing out to you. But that is not the case with Paul. 
Paul, as he is writing these words, is literally chained in prison. And as you know, prisons in the first century were nothing like prisons of today. They were dirty, filthy, cramped. There were, hard, there were, there were no amenities. I was going to say hardly any amenities. There were no amenities. You were at the mercy of friends and family to provide food and clothing for you. So Paul is not saying this sitting in an ivory tower all comfortable. He is saying out of the depth of his own painful experience, I am telling you Philippians, no matter what you are going through, rejoice in the Lord. Coming from someone who has every reason to be discouraged, every reason to complain, and every natural reason to not rejoice, this command carries a lot of weight. If Paul could rejoice in his circumstances, then the Philippians could be sure that they would rejoice, they could rejoice right where they are. And we can be sure that we can rejoice right where we are. And I don't have to know your circumstances to know that that is true. We are commanded to rejoice. Now further, of course, he commands us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in what the Lord has done. Rejoice in who the Lord is. Rejoice in the things of God, the things that now belong to you by virtue of being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. A believer always has reason to rejoice. And that's why Paul could add, rejoice in the Lord always, not just in those good times, not just when it is abundantly obvious how God is blessing you, even those times when it seems like God's smile is hidden behind the storm clouds of life, you can rejoice in the Lord. The Holy Spirit knows that we will naturally complain, that we will naturally grumble. He knows that we will naturally get discouraged by the hard things of life. So he moves the Apostle Paul to tell us, to encourage us, to exhort us to rejoice in the Lord always. And just to make sure we don't miss it, then Paul says, again, I will say rejoice. It's like uh, those preachers that, that probably irritate you as much as me that say things over and over again. Rejoice. You guys listening to me? Rejoice. I, uh, this is only a side note, but it does always uh, irritate me if a guy says, hey, you guys listening when I'm, I'm sitting here in front of you. Yes, I'm listening. That's just a personal irritation of mine. I should rejoice. I really should. So the Spirit moved Paul to command us to rejoice. Don't let periods of life's, in life's valley stop you from rejoicing in Christ and his greatness. I do like this comment. I found this uh, author, Roger Ellsworth. He wrote this. Paul is not calling here for some kind of general happy optimism that has no basis. Back in the late 80s, when I was in high school, there was a, a song that became very popular, very catchy little tune. We used to sing it all the time. And it was, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And uh, it was, you know, it, it just listening to it would kind of make you happy or maybe irritated, depending on your personality. <laughs> but that, that's the kind of attitude I think that the world often has, right? When people are trying to encourage you, well, just, you know, just be happy. Just don't worry. Just be happy. So Paul's not saying that. He's not saying just ignore everything else that's going on in your life and be happy. He is encouraging us to rejoice in the Lord. And, and as Ellsworth added, there are no reasons for rejoicing without the Lord, but with him there is no end to the reasons for rejoicing. The scriptures do not teach us to ignore pain and sadness and just put on a happy face. They tell us to rejoice in the unchanging eternal God, to access the joy that is invincible. Nothing that happens to you will ever change the fact 
that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and he rose from the dead. Nothing you go through will alter the eternal plan of God for your life, the eternal plan of God to save a people for his son, through his son. No attack from man or demon can take anything away from who God is. God's character and his nature are unassailable and unconquerable, and therefore if we are investing our joy in that, that joy cannot be stopped. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice because you're forgiven. Rejoice because you're adopted into the family of God, and he will never cast you out. Rejoice because you have an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The Philippians were facing opposition, and Paul warned them that they would suffer for the sake of Christ. They had at least one major division in the church, as I alluded to earlier, Euodia and Syntyche. And still, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, always rejoice. If you're running late for work and you get a flat tire, you can still rejoice. Now, I don't mean that you rejoice in the flat tire. Oh, Lord God, whoo, I am so happy you gave me a flat tire this morning. I'm going to be late. I'm going to be frazzled. My boss is going to be mad. Wonderful. Praise you, God. What I'm saying, and I think what the scripture is telling us to do, is rejoice in who the Lord is and what he is doing independently of the circumstances that we're facing. You can praise God that you're forgiven and adopted and loved, even in the midst of feeling frazzled and stressed. You can rejoice in the Lord when the line at Walmart is moving as slowly as a glacier. You can rejoice in the Lord in any and every circumstance of life. And in fact, you and I are commanded to do just that. That is what the Lord is telling us. The Lord is telling us that is how we should live, to rejoice in him always. But I want us to think about something more serious than flat tires and slow lines. My apologies. <clears throat> think about the harder things in life. When your teenage daughter runs away, when your son is diagnosed with cancer, or when you have a spouse that dies. <clears throat> Excuse me, this morning I was, I was thinking about a number of uh, women in our church who are now widows over the past couple of years that have lost spouses, like Pat Van Beek and uh, Shirley Custer and Ruby Muscovich and several others. And I was just weighed down with, with compassion for them. But I can urge them and tell them that the Lord still calls them to rejoice, rejoice and offers them joy even in the midst of those painful circumstances. So the Lord does expect us to rejoice even in those times, even those soul-shattering, mind-blowing times. But the rejoicing will look different because it's happening in the midst of grieving. My apologies. I was, before service, I was uh, talking to Grant Bridgman, and we were just sharing a bit about what all this congregation has been through in this past year. And so I don't want to come across as glib either or as offering platitudes and just say, I know it's hard, but rejoice. But I do want to urge you to find your joy in the Lord Jesus. Excuse me, let me get a drink. 
Okay. Let's see if I can bring my voice down an octave. I brought a Kleenex up here because I thought that might happen. So uh, let me just say, let me add this as well. I think the tenor of this passage is not Paul heavily scolding the people of God and saying, look, Philippians, I know it's hard, but buck up and rejoice in the Lord. I think he is offering the grace and mercy of Christ to say, even in these hard things, you can find joy. Even in these hard things, the Lord Jesus is offering you his joy, which cannot be conquered or stopped. So I would not praise God that my teenage daughter ran away or that my son was diagnosed with cancer, but I could still find joy in who the Lord is and in what he is doing. The painful things are not a ble- excuse me, the painful things are not a basis for rejoicing. It is the character of God and the finished work of Christ that are our basis for rejoicing. What God is doing in and through the trials and the tragedies of life is a basis for rejoicing. We can say, I'm sorry, I'm going to get unintelligible in a second. We can say, Lord, I thank you and I praise you for working even this horrible thing for my good. Our Father in heaven is telling us, encouraging us, inviting us to rejoice in him, to find our joy in him. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Not in the pain of the sickness, not in the pain of the tragedy, but in the presence of Almighty God, there is fullness of joy. Oh, I shouldn't have added this last sentence. Let's see if I can hold it together to get to the next point. Let me just say this. If you are suffering this morning under a load of sadness or pain or shame or despair, let me encourage you to turn your eyes to Christ Jesus. In his gentleness and loving kindness, he will wrap his arms around you, receive you right where you are, and lead you to joy in him. Rejoice because he has won the battle for your redemption. Rejoice because he's transferred you from the domain of darkness into his eternal kingdom. Rejoice in the unchanging character of Christ and his finished work. Joy in the Lord is is invincible because the Lord doesn't change. And what he's done will stand forever. So again, I offer this command to you as God's word, to you as one of the ways that our good shepherd is redeeming us more and more from the effects of sin in our lives. Rejoice in the Lord. Give him praise today and pursue joy in him. And let me just add one more sideline to this. If you are in that place, you're at the bottom of the valley right now, please reach out to another brother and sister in Christ that can come alongside you and help you to find joy in Christ again. That's part of why we are a body, because we are to lean on one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. Okay, I'm going to stop before I just fall on my face and and start weeping. Uh, Secondly, union with Christ enables us to be gentle. So uh, by our union with Christ, we are given access to accessible joy and we are enabled to be gentle. Now I realize, and even as I wrote this last night, it was like, that actually doesn't sound very appealing. I mean, you know, gentle, I mean, do you really want to be gentle? But if you think of the, the, the noun, yeah, gentle is an adjective. If you think of the noun gentleness, 
then you will remember that gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit that God wants to cultivate in us. So yes, indeed, we do want to be gentle in the same way that Jesus was gentle. That doesn't mean that we're always speaking softly. It doesn't mean we stand up, don't stand up for what is right or defend what is true. But it does, it does refer to an attitude and a way of interacting with people that we need to pursue. In verse 5, he said, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. <clears throat> Most translations use the word gentle or gentleness, and so that was why I used that word instead of reasonableness. John Gill, the great 18th century English Baptist pastor, described reasonableness this way, not rigidly insisting on what is your due, putting up with affronts and injuries and bearing them with patience, and listen to this, and interpreting things in the best sense and putting the best constructions on words and actions they will bear and treating others with all humility, kindness, and respect. So that is what is meant by gentleness. It is a way of treating others with respect and dignity. It is a way of not always insisting on your way or in getting all that you're due. It's being willing to yield to others. Since we're forgiven and we've come under the care and protection and provision of the one true God, we don't have to fight for our place in the world. We don't have to fight for our place in the family of God. We don't have to fight and scrap and kick and bite in order to get ahead. We can rest in the mercy, grace, and provision of our Heavenly Father. We can show gentleness, sweet reasonableness in our dealings with others. As believers and unbelievers look at your life, because Paul said your reasonableness should be known to everyone, so as believers and unbelievers look at your life, they should see someone who does not rigidly insist on what is their due, someone who can put up with personal affronts without attacking in response. They should know that you are a gentle person. Faith Life Study Bible says this, by displaying gentleness toward all people, believers and unbelievers alike, Christians reveal the gospel's power to transform and reconcile. Because that's not our human nature, right? When we are reviled, we want to revile in turn. When we're provoked, we want to respond and attack. By displaying gentleness or reasonableness to others, we show that the transforming power of the spirit within us is real. Now, I am going to let you in on a little secret. This is something I have observed in my half century of life. And that is this, if you do insist on getting your own way, if you do fight and kick and scratch and claw and push people out of your way to make sure you're getting everything that you feel like you deserve, you probably will get ahead in life. I have known many people who have done that, many successful people who kick and bite and scratch and scream and berate others and do whatever it takes to make sure they're getting all that they deserve. So if you do that, it will look like you're successful on the outside many times. But you know what isn't true? You wouldn't be honoring the Lord Jesus. You wouldn't be cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. You wouldn't be living in light of your union with Christ. You wouldn't be adorning the gospel by loving your neighbor. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are called, you are commanded to live differently, to show people gentleness. His commands, as I mentioned, are one of the ways he uses to redeem us from the curse of sin. And part of the, one of the effects of the curse of sin is that, that we attack when we attack. We fight back. We do all we can to look out for number one. 
But the transforming power of the Spirit leads us down a different path of treating people with gentleness. And I thought of a good real-world example here, Lord willing, one that won't make me cry. <laughs> it's about a refrigerator, so it shouldn't, right? So let's say, let's say that you bought a new refrigerator, and uh, you get it home, and about four months down the line, the ice dispenser stops working. This is somewhat true to life because our ice dispenser is not working. The ice dispenser stops working. So you call the store that you got it from, and you're like, hey, this ice dispenser stops working. What can you guys do to help me out? And then they tell you, oh, well, let me look up the sale. Oh, that it's, it's past its warranty. There's, there's actually nothing that we can do to help you out. And it's going to cost about $300 to fix that ice dispenser. And you don't have $300. Christmas is coming up. You've got lots of bills to worry about. Now, at that point, you can respond in a couple of ways. One way would be to just unload your frustration and anger on that employee. I demand to speak to the store manager. I'm going to tell him that he shouldn't sell such shoddy products. He needs to have better warranties. And if he doesn't make this right, I'm not going to shop there anymore. And I'm going to tell my friends the same. You could just really lay into them. And you might, you might even be able to push that store manager to do something for you. Okay, I'll, I'll pay for the ice dispenser. But again, would you be displaying the love of Christ? Would you be showing the character of Christ? It would be within the, uh, within the will of God for you to let the people know, sure, okay, I, I can't afford this. Is there any way you could help me out? But if they say no, you don't fight and bite and scrap and berate and intimidate in order to get your way. You show the gentleness of the Lord and trust in his provision. Union with Christ enables us to be gentle, so let's do that. Let's show the love of God to the people around us by doing as John Gill explained. How about this? Interpreting things in the best sense. Now, in the rise of electronic communication, one of the things that has been lost is tone. You know, when we moved from having face-to-face -to, -face to being able to talk on the telephone, telephone came along when I was in middle school, when we got that, we, one thing we lost in that communication was, was uh, facial expressions and, and body language, right? So talking on the phone is already one step down, but now you get to where you're just reading words on a screen, and you will naturally, especially if it's someone you don't like or that's hurt you in your past, you will naturally put the worst spin possible. Oh, they say that, but I think they really mean this other thing. I see what they're trying to do here. And John Gill saying, look, gentleness is, I'm going to try to interpret this in the best light. Now, again, let me add, that is not to say that you go through life with rose-colored glasses on and put blinders on. You do still have to be discerning. You might know someone's character and know, okay, I do know exactly what they're doing. But in general, the way that you treat people is by interpreting their actions and words in the best sense possible. Now, uh... Well, I'm going to skip that. It's getting late. Uh, union with Christ enables us to be gentle. So the last benefit of union with Christ I'll mention is this. Union with Christ gives us access to peace. Now, the reason I say access to peace is because our experience of God's peace, it, it waxes and wanes. It goes up and down, right? It's not constant because of our own uh, sinful nature and weak human nature. But let's look again at verses 5b to 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So before mentioning the problem of anxiety, Paul reminds the Philippians that the Lord is at hand, or some translations put it, the Lord is near. There are two ways of understanding that phrase. It could be that Paul is talking about the fact that at any time the Lord could return. So the Lord's return is near as a motivation to say, you should be living in light of the Lord's coming return and setting up his kingdom. Now, another way to understand that is just as a comforting encouragement that the Lord is near. I know you're going to face things that cause you anxiety, but remember the Lord is at hand. The Lord is right there with you. He is on your side. He is helping you. And I think the second understanding makes more sense if indeed that first phrase should be joined with verse 6. Some translations don't, uh, but that's another matter. Either way, uh, the point is, the Lord is near us. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. If anxiety is troubling your heart, the nearness of Jesus is a helpful, calming truth. He's here to overcome our fears and concerns. So since he is near, don't be anxious about anything. Now let me remind you once again, Paul is chained in prison. He doesn't know for sure if he's ever going to get out of that prison before the end of his life. He doesn't know for sure if he's going to see the next winter. Completely reasonable if he was balled up with anxiety and worry because he knows nothing about his future from a human perspective. He's not being glib. He's not throwing out platitudes. He is giving us powerful medicine to relieve us from crippling anxiety. And before I get into the remedy, I want to think about this phrase. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Be not anxious. Excuse me. Be not careful. No, what is it? The King James. Be careful for nothing. In other words, don't be full of care. Now, you can read this phrase in two ways. You can read it as Paul telling an overwrought, worry-filled people to stop being anxious. In other words, as correction, stop it, Philippians, stop it. Or you can read it as Paul comforting the people of God with help for their anxiety. And I think it's the latter. I think this is a, this is a word from our Father saying, don't be anxious. Sort of like a parent comforting a child in the middle of the night that's scared. You don't go up to them and say, stop being scared, there's nothing to be scared about. I mean, maybe you do, but you shouldn't do that. That is not being gentle or Christ-like, so don't do that. What you do out of your love and concern for this child is say, don't be scared. I'm right here. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. It's a comforting correction, not a scolding correction. And the more I get to know God as my Father, the more I am certain that this verse is a comfort, that this is, this is the Lord comforting us in our anxiety. It makes me think of the time that the angel visited Mary to tell her that she was going to give birth to Jesus. What did he say? Mary, don't be afraid. Now, do you think that he was scolding Mary? Mary, stop being afraid. There's this supernatural being just appeared in your room, but you stop being afraid. No, I think he was saying to calm her, to encourage, to comfort her. Don't be afraid. I'm here for your good. I'm here to help you. And I think that's exactly what the Father is telling us this morning do not be anxious. I'm here for you. I'm here to care for you. I'm here to help you. And I'm going to give you a way to, to uh, tackle your anxiety head on. But let me just add this. One more brief discussion. Here's a question that comes up in my mind whenever I encounter this. Is anxiety a sin? Because he just said, 
don't be anxious about anything. So if I feel anxious, am I, am I sinning? Do I need to repent that I even felt anxious? Well, you can probably tell by my tone of voice that I'm going to say no there. No, anxiety in and of itself is not a sin. And here's why I know that. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was to be betrayed. And here's what happened. It says, they went up to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, triune, excuse me, eternal, invincible, all-knowing. And he said this, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus was experiencing anxiety over what he was about to experience on the cross. The word that's translated anxious in Philippians 6 means to have an anxious concern based on apprehension about possible danger or misfortune. Now, Jesus knew that he was about to encounter, experience, and drink to the bottom the full cup of God's wrath. He was going to experience the wrath of God against, against all of our sin for himself. And Jesus had only ever experienced the Father's smile and approval and love and affirmation and enthusiastic fellowship. And he was about to experience God's wrath, to feel something he'd never felt before, the anger of the Father, not toward him, but toward our sin. And Jesus was anxious about that. He knew that he was about to step into the abyss of God's wrath, and he was feeling sorrowful. He was dreading it. So since Jesus experienced anxiety, I can stand before you completely certain and say that if you are feeling anxiety, you have not sinned. It is not a sin to feel anxiety. And then, by God's gracious mercy, he gives us a remedy to fight against our anxiety. Just as Jesus did, made his request known to God, Paul says that's what we do. Okay, you feeling anxious? Then go to God in prayer. Make your request known to him. Paul isn't correcting the Philippians for feeling anxious in response to their troubles. He is showing them that there is help in the Lord for their anxiety. He's addressing the problem of giving in to anxiety, letting, letting worry control your thoughts and actions. And instead of doing that, Paul says, do what Jesus did. Take your requests to the Lord. Make them known to him. When your anxiety rises up within you, pray. Tell God what's causing your anxiety. Ask him to do what it would take to take care of that anxiety. I'm worried that my children won't return to the Lord. I don't know how I'll meet the deadline. I got some bad medical news, and I'm scared of how that will change my life. Whatever it is, take that to the Lord. Give thanks to God for who he is and what he's doing and for hearing you to orient your heart in confidence and trust to him, but be open and honest about what's causing you trouble. As an example, you might pray something like this. Father, I'm worried that I'll never find a, gr a group of friends that I fit in with. I always seem to be the odd one out. Help me, Lord God, to find good friends. Help me find a place where I fit. Help me to be a good friend to others. Thank you, Lord, for hearing me. Thank you for caring. Thank you that you are my friend and you accept me and you'll never leave me. Instead of dwelling on the source of your anxiety, tell it to the Lord. As specific as you can get, make your request known to God. He says in prayer and supplication, prayer, of course, is just in general. Talking to God, supplication is asking for something specific. 
So tell God exactly what's going on. Tell God exactly what's worrying you, what you're scared of, what you're worried about, what's troubling your spirit, and then ask him to take care of that problem. Ask him for exactly what you think would solve the problem that's in your spirit, would take away this anxiety. And even if your request isn't quite right, because we are fallen creatures, we, we are limited in our understanding. Romans 8 says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. If you have a need, ask God to meet that need, and the Spirit of God will take that prayer, and he will shape it and correct it and fix it and offer it up as a perfect prayer to the Father. And once you do that, hold on to this promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, he didn't promise that you'll immediately feel God's peace. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But he did say that God's peace will guard you. It will guard you from giving in to a lack of confidence in God's goodness and mercy. It will guard you from giving in to despair. It will guard you from giving up. Take your requests to the Lord. In his uh, wisdom, God actually brought something into my life yesterday to give me a chance to live this out. And I'm happy to report that I failed. <laughs> Not happy to report it. I'm sad to report that I did fail uh, initially. Yesterday evening, uh, we'd been having some plumbing issues that I thought were fixed, and then they returned. And you know how when you, when you flush a toilet and water starts coming up in the bathtub, that's a problem? <laughs> That's a problem. We have a bathtub and a shower. Both of them are doing that. There's gurgling noises happening. I didn't know what to do. It's late at night. I was like half done with my sermon. So I was feeling this, this stress, this anxiety. <laughs> I was anxious for something. Believe me, I was anxious about finishing the sermon. I was anxious about fixing the plumbing. I was anxious about calling out a plumber on a weekend, <laughs> which, you know, you'd have to take a second mortgage out for that. So I was feeling anxiety, and initially what I did was just, just wallow in that anxiety. You know, this is just about right, God, here I am. It's the night before I preach, week, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, everything's going great, and this horrible problem props up. <clears throat> but God did correct me because I, at some point later I was preparing for this sermon, and then I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> it's, uh, don't be anxious, but make my request known to God. So I prayed about that, and then 30 minutes later again, about an hour later again, a few hours later again. Uh, all that to say, this is a promise from God, that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. It is not a promise that you will immediately feel better, but it is a promise that God will give you his peace, whether you're feeling it or not. He is giving you his peace to guard your hearts and minds from falling into despair and uh, doubting his goodness and mercy. So let me close up here. It's getting a little bit late. The big idea is that in Christ we have joy, gentleness, and peace. And you'll recognize all three of those as a fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit of God is working in our lives. Paul only focused on these three. In this particular case, probably what the Philippians most needed to hear. All three of these blessings are ours in the Lord Jesus all three of these blessings are actually commanded. We should rejoice. We should be gentle. We should make our requests known to God. We should pray and experience his peace. So let me ask you this. Are you rejoicing in the Lord always? Or do you face difficulties with complaining and self-pity? I already told you all how I experienced uh, complaining and self-pity. I'll step up to the front of the line on that one. 
Does everyone know your reasonableness, or are you selfish and unyielding, the kind of person people would rather not deal with? Do you pray and petition the Lord when you feel anxious, or did you, do you plunge into paralyzing worry? Now, none of us can say yes to the first part of these questions 100% of the time, because we're imperfect, we're sinful. So all of us give in to the second half of each of those questions, complaining, self-pity, being selfish and unyielding, giving in to worry and anxiety. All of us disobey all three of these commands, but praise the Lord Jesus Christ, he never did. And it is his record of perfect obedience that is credited to us when we trust in him and when we are united to him. He rejoiced in the Father always. Everyone knew his gentleness, and he prayed when he faced anxiety. So confess to the Lord when you fall short. Yes, Lord God, forgive me. I should have been gentle and I just berated that guy. I should have been patient, and I was impatient. I should have prayed, and instead I just worried. Confess that, but then receive the glorious life-giving forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ, because he did obey perfectly, because we are accepted by the Father in him. And my final encouragement is that we all do pursue joy and gentleness and the peace of God in these troubled times. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, first of all, that you are our Father, that you have adopted us in your Son, Jesus, freely, mercifully, graciously, every one of us undeserving, every one of us richly deserving eternity in hell. But you revealed your Son to us, and you brought us to live forever with you. We praise you for that, Father. We thank you, and we give you glory and honor this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of this passage would sink deeply into our hearts and that by your Spirit it would work out into the practice of our lives, that all of us would move further on in rejoicing, that we would move further on in being gentle, that we would move further on in fighting anxiety with prayer. Thank you for this good word, Lord God. Thank you for loving us deeply, faithfully, and fully. And I pray for your merciful grace on everyone who has gathered here this morning, everyone who is watching online, and all of those in the body who weren't able to be here. In your holy name, amen.